Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, according to a new poll from Angus Reid, the majority of Canadians support the Prime Minister and his approval of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. The United States and Iran at loggerheads. Who will blink first? Trump and Trudeau finish a meeting this week and all went well for a change. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. According to uh, the Angus Reid Institute, the major- a majority say that the government made the right call in approving the Trans Mountain Pipeline extension. You might remember this has just been a whole, um, uh, just a mishmash of, of events. Um, uh, the pipeline initially owned by Kinder Morgan. Uh, it's been approved and then they ran into difficulty and more whatever. They said, that's it, we're pulling out. Uh, the uh, the Prime Minister said, no, uh, no problem, we'll buy it, four and a half million bucks, and uh, promised to get her built, and uh, went through uh, the whole process again, and it has been approved again, and says that uh, it'll be started this construction season this year, uh, and it will, in fact, go, go ahead. Many uh, cranky about this, because a couple of days before, the uh, Prime Minister, uh, his government declared a national climate emergency, and then two days later, uh, obviously to soften the blow of the confirmation of a, a pipeline build. Um, you know, I, I think one of the reasons, and again, this is something that the Prime Minister has said for a long time. He said he's going to get this thing built. Whether you believe him or not is another story, but that's what he's been saying. So it's a, to me, I think where people are having a hard time is that uh, this government has just been screaming like its hair's on fire, that we have to do something, that we need to do more because the world's coming to an end and only Canada can prevent that. And then all of a sudden goes, but by the way, we're going to build a pipeline, which to me is a more moderate approach to things as opposed to pandering to the extremes. Uh, there's a way to do it. I think Canadians all are concerned about the climate and, and leaving a, a smaller footprint for the, for the future. But there, there's more than one way to, to do things here. And I, I think that's why the prime minister is having difficulty here is he's saying one thing and then doing another. Uh, trying to appeal to everybody and promising the world, over-promising and under-delivering. So where this will end up, and and personally, I think this was a good decision for the Prime Minister, and I think it will help him. But again, I'm for the pipeline. To talk more about all of this and what these numbers mean, let's bring in Dave Dave Korzynski with Angus Reid Institute. They're the people behind the poll, and he is with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Thanks for having me. So, Dave, uh, I guess if we break this down, 56% uh, say that uh, the, the majority of Canadians, 56% say they agree with the government decision uh, to twin the pipeline. Is fifty is 56% a big margin here? Yeah, it, it is, and it, it wouldn't be necessarily if you had 44% who were saying that they opposed the decision, but right. the, num- the number saying that they made the wrong decision is only 24%. Right. Um, so I think that's significant in itself because you've got more than a two-to-one ratio of support versus opposition, and then those 21% of people who say that they're not really sure if this was the right call, I, I think the government is fine with that probably, and especially the way that this resonates in areas that they're, you know, they're trying to get their their support numbers up, particularly in Ontario where 61% say it was the right choice and only 19% say it was the wrong choice. So I think that's significant. They might have a little bit more trouble in BC and Quebec which are also very competitive uh in the in the federal horse race numbers right now where opposition is is highest in the country. Both of them are still below a majority, but 40% say that they made the wrong choice in Quebec, and 30% say that in B.C. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. It's hard to really uh, figure out where this is going to end up. But I think just on the face of it, the government, if they're looking at these numbers, have pro- got, probably got to be pretty happy, I think, of the, the top-line results of people saying that they, they made the right call here. Are you surprised at these numbers? Because it would appear, and if you're, you know, to follow what's going on, I mean, a lot of people are supposedly up in arms about this. Is, is the rhetoric louder than the reality? Yeah, I think it's been that way for a number of years, actually, where um, particularly out here in B.C. where you've seen, you know, Elizabeth May and the now mayor of Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart, were both arrested last year protesting the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. Um, the, the, the protests are always quite loud and well-covered. 
Um, but we have found over the course of the last 18 months, we've, we've asked about this issue five separate times, and every time we found that support outpaces opposition, and in some cases in BC, it's by 20 points or, or 16 points like it is right now, um, it, it, that's quite significant. So you've got a, a full majority of residents out here kind of at, at the epicenter of, of the, the pushback, uh, saying that they support the the project, so it's a little bit um, surprising, maybe in some areas, to see Quebec so opposed. But at the same time, Quebec is often that way and has kind of become the the environmental uh, the the movement that BC used to have the reputation for. I think Quebec has kind of taken that mantle. So some surprises in the numbers, but certainly something that we've seen before in terms of the majority support uh, in the face of. Uh, quite a, a louder, I think, vocal minority. So what does that say? Well, I guess it says that clearly the anti-side is a lot more vocal and mobilized. Yeah, I think that, the, you know, the pro-side has been, has been quite mobilized in terms of the, the governments who have been supporting it. So in Alberta, they've actually created quite a, quite a, a large pro-Trans Mountain campaign. So we see a lot of commercials out here in B.C. that are paid for by the Alberta government or, or the Canadian uh, Association of Petroleum Producers. Um, so in, in that way, they're, they're quite well organized. But um, in terms of the protest movements and a lot of the photo ops that you see or people that are, are promising to you know, barricade the, the construction sites and, and do a lot of these kind of uh, tactics to disrupt construction if it indeed does go forward in B.C., I think those, those get a lot of attention. So you tend to... Um, in, in the absence of large-scale polling numbers, which we've seen now, not only from from our institute, which is nonprofit, we don't nobody pays us to do this. You also saw a poll from Ipsos earlier uh, this week that was was paid for by a, a an organization that is pro pipeline, but also found 60% support in BC. So, I think our 54% we're quite comfortable with that number uh, out here. And so the number yeah, in BC is as high as 60% support. Uh, that that's what Ipsos found. Yeah, we yeah. we have seen that at the Angus Reid Institute. We had that actually. It was last last June. Right. We got sixty one percent, but we've seen fifty four, fifty three, and fifty four also over the course of the last uh, I guess sixteen months or so. We've seen that majority support level in BC consistently. So uh, I think that's really you know it, it doesn't necessarily get as much coverage um, as as the yeah. I don't think the rest of the country would have thought that. Yeah, and well, and you know, you've got the, the the premier in BC saying that he's going to take this this fight, uh, the the court battle to the Supreme Court if necessary, and saying that he's going to use all of the tools in his toolbox to oppose the the pipeline, and he's been doing so since 2017. And there, there's a, a a great number of BC residents who who support him in that, but he does risk, uh, as I wrote in the piece, he does risk kind of being at odds with the majority in the province and people outside of. Uh, Metro Vancouver and, and Vancouver Island are, are largely uh, quite supportive of the project and, and would like to see it move forward. Uh, how does he balance uh, being an NDP government with the Greens? I mean, is this going to get more and more difficult as, 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 as another election approaches? Yeah, that's the interesting question. No, I think uh, he's taken a lot of the, the, the right steps in order to ensure that that partnership goes forward. Um, and it's, it's a tricky spot because... Uh, uh, the the court out here, the the provincial appeals court, voted unanimously or uh, ruled unanimously that uh, the BC government did not have the jurisdiction to regulate what flows in in a federally uh, federally mandated pipeline. So uh, the idea that they're going to win that case uh, in the Supreme Court is uh, not exactly the most convincing to a lot of people. So it'll be interesting to see what happens if indeed they do lose that. Uh, what other tools do they have? Because um, they've, they've sort of run out of options at that point. Um, so it, it will be interesting. And now we're, you know, we're two years away from the next scheduled election, but it, we'll see what happens with green support if indeed the government does say, you know, we've, we've run out of options and we have to allow this to be built, because I think a lot of people would be quite upset over that. What is the gas? What are the gas prices in Vancouver right now? And is that a, is that still a source of concern for people living there? You know, it's actually um, since over the course of the last month, the, the prices have dropped, dropped really yeah. significantly. Yeah. I think the highest level we got to was one seventy one per liter, and 
uh, just around my neighborhood of Vancouver. I saw 126 and 128 uh, the other night. So they're down quite a bit, hovering more around the, the mid-130s range. So people are a little less stressed about it, but uh, still higher than other places in the country. So what about how, uh, how, how do Canadians feel about how this whole Trans Mountain Pipeline issue has been handled? Um, I think overall they're, you know, they're, they're a little bit disappointed with how long this has taken a lot of the supporters. You see a significant number of actually supporters saying that they, they're not quite sure that the, the pipeline will actually be built. For example, in, in Alberta, you've got 87% of people who say that they support the pipeline, and I think it's 85% who say that the government ra- made the right choice. But only 60% actually think that the pipeline will be built. So yeah. a lot of them have lost faith in um, the the conjecture and and the kind of the the symbolic approvals that they see. Do, um, are, are they having cons- not actually moved forward, uh, especially the one in 2016, which didn't end up resulting in construction? So are they concerned that it won't be built because of uh, 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 the, the politics of the day, the, the politician of the day, or that it's just the whole thing's going out of favor? Is it more to do with the government of the day? Yeah, I think especially in Alberta and Saskatchewan, a lot of it is that uh, they, they're not necessarily trusting the government. They don't, they've lost faith in Justin Trudeau to be able to accomplish this. And you saw Jason Kenney say right after the announcement that, you know that that's great, but we're we're kind of we'll believe it when we see shovels in the ground rather than just taking you at your word. And I think they they feel spurned by the fact that the project was given the go ahead by the National Energy Board and the federal government in 2016, and then was unable to get completed and ultimately had to go through this process again. So I think a lot of it comes to with the, the federal government and. It's interesting that the, the percentage in BC that say the pipeline will be built is actually higher than it is in Alberta, despite the <laughs> the really vast uh, kind of uh, support levels. So you know, it, it's it, I think that people on the prairies are just saying, you know, we've seen this, we've heard this song before, and a lot of them are saying, you know, they don't believe that this will happen unless Andrew Scheer does win. They think that it might be an election ploy to try to get some more votes from people who are a little bit more right-leaning or potentially thinking about supporting the Conservatives. Um, So that will be really interesting to watch during the campaign, I think. How do you think this will affect the election? Will he, has the Prime Minister impressed more people than he has ticked off? Well, I think that there's quite a bit of division. It's really hard to, to anticipate. If you look at the percentage of, uh, for example, those people who are saying that they're primarily considering the NDP or the Green Party, which if, if you envision a scenario where the Liberals end up uh, you know, forming a majority again, they would have to, to get a, a good chunk of those, those more left-leaning voters. Um, but when you ask them about this, ultimately this choice, 37% of those considering the NDP say it was the right call versus 36% who disagree. And for Greens, who actually, you know, they're polling in double digits now, 36% say that it was the right call versus 43% who say it was the wrong one. So hmm. within those parties, hmm. uh, it's interesting that the, the decision does resonate with more than one in three, because uh, that was one of the surprises for me, I think, was... I thought that the percentage saying it was the wrong call would actually be quite a bit higher among those groups. Yeah. But I think the the idea that they've struck the right balance, uh, particularly by noting that any of the the profits, every dollar earned from the pipeline is going to go into a clean energy transition hmm. um, that they're going to define, I think that helps to bring some people over. So there is a potential that this actually does help Trudeau insofar as the, the support numbers are so much higher than the opposition numbers, and support within those left, left-leaning groups is yeah. actually uh, quite a bit higher than we anticipated seeing. Uh, how, especially with the, uh, the resurgence of the Green, and, and many are talking that they're now the third uh, protest vote or the third option uh, surpassing the NDP in, in some scenarios, how is that going to fare splitting the left vote? Yeah, that, that's interesting. It's, it's the, the dynamic, and I think that's why you're seeing so many of these really close races and kind of uh, a, a lot of different numbers between pollsters in B.C. and in Ontario and in Quebec. These are places where the Green Party has got some momentum. There's some disenchanted liberal voters who are moving to either the NDP or the Green, and, and the, 
the kind of issue for for the NDP so far has been that uh, Jagmeet Singh has not really made a, a big impact so far on on the national stage, whereas we see consistently Elizabeth May is actually the most approved of federal leader um, in in both quarters that we've been that we've done our our federal tracking poll this year. She's well ahead of the other leaders, so she's actually garnering quite a bit of momentum and. Uh, it, it was interesting to see her kind of say that she w- would would work with Trudeau in in a, a form of coalition uh, to try to uh, hmm. block the conservatives from getting a majority or a minority government, um, because uh, you know a lot of her voters traditionally would not would not support Justin Trudeau, but maybe um, his you know the carbon tax and the fact that he's selling this pipeline as a way to increase. Uh, funding for green initiatives, maybe that that is something that's resonating. And uh, if if the NDP fails to to really recapture their base from the last election, those voters are either going to go to the Greens or the Liberals. We've seen that in terms of their second choice. So uh, uh, the left in itself is representing about three in ten voters, but I think for the Liberals to win, they need to peel away you know eight to ten percent of that, which is going to be quite a, a tough task at this point. But there are signs that they're they're making a bit of headway um, with this announcement, and and maybe they can build on that going forward. Is um, uh, you know uh, the liberals made climate change a a huge pillar in their in their election platform? It now seems to be the only one that we're all talking about. Is that what this election is going to be about? Is it going to be all about climate? And when does the Green have to provide, the Green Party have to provide more than just what they'll do with the environment as far as, far as fiscal policies and all the rest that go into making government? Yeah, I think that's going to be really important, especially when the campaign starts. And, and one of the things, just tangentially, is that Elizabeth May has to, um, has to get into the debates this time around. That was a big talking point last time. She was polling a little bit lower, and the, the Greens were lower nationally, but... Um, for her to really make an impact and get her message out to Canadians, I think she would have to be a bigger part of the campaign than the Greens were last time. And I think that um, the, the climate change itself will be a big issue. We've seen a lot of people in Canada uh, are very concerned about that. And when you look at, we ask people when they think about this Trans Mountain project and, and the concerns they might have, Two-thirds of them say that one of the concerns they have is the environmental impact of, uh, you know, increasing the flow of oil and burning more fossil fuels. So it's something that they're thinking about. And that number is, is even about four in ten or higher among those who support the pipeline, who say that they're concerned about that. So I think climate change is top of mind. And um, it'll be interesting to see. There's been some criticism of the conservative platform um, for you know, carbon pricing going forward, and and I think they're going to have to explain that a little bit better in terms of which mechanisms are going to be enforceable within their plan. And I think that's a big part of of you know shoring up their base and growing a little bit because we've seen the Conservative Party over the last year or so uh, jump up to about 38 percent support and then kind of stay there. They're yeah. not really growing, and I think a lot of people are hesitant to even if they're not necessarily wanting to support the Liberals again, they're hesitant to support the Conservatives because of some of these issues like the environment where uh, they don't necessarily see the Conservatives as as having uh, as good of a plan as the other parties might have. And as you said, I think the Greens um, are, over the course of the next couple of months, really do have to roll out their plan for things outside of the environment because they're... Well, it's kind of funny that everybody... It's funny because everybody's screaming that the Conservatives hadn't unveiled their Green plan, and it's like, well, the Green parties haven't really unveiled anything else. Yeah, yeah, and and I think... (laughs) It's very bizarre. That'll be interesting to watch, and it's very important for them to become more than the one-issue party because that's... The only way that you and really that, grow your and, and that's really, I think, the way people are viewing it now, and they're running to it as a third-party option because so many are concerned about the environmental challenges. But, you know, it's going to take more than that to push them over the hump, isn't it? Yeah, we see the environment as our top issue in both quarters, uh, tracking nationally for, for people when they think about what the federal government needs to be concerned about. And that really does help to explain the green push and, and Elizabeth May's uh, popularity uh, you know, when it comes down to campaign season and you're talking about more issues than that or you get into the debates and they give you, you know, fiscal policy and you can't necessarily just talk about the environment, um, 
yeah, that, that'll be very important for them to roll something out and, and really communicate it widely to Canadians if they're going to potentially take the NDP spot as that 15 to 20 percent party, uh, more so than the single digits that they usually get. Dave Korzynski has been with us. Angus Reid Institute, a new poll by Angus Reid saying the majority of Canadians, uh, about 59 percent, approve the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline extension. Dave, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. No problem. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, the U.S. president confirmed reports that the country abruptly called off preparations for a military strike against Iran. This was over the downing of a U.S. drone. Uh, the U.S. say everyone else says it's in, in uh, international waters. Uh, this drone, you sort of, it's, it's, um, when you think of drone, what do you think of? You think of people flying things around your neighborhood. This is a massive aircraft. This is has the wingspan of a 737, $100 million. So it's not like something flying over, um, you know, the fair with a camera on it, so to speak. Uh, to talk more about all this and the seriousness of it, Alex Vantanka is with us, senior fellow, the Middle East Institute. They are the oldest Washington-based institute dedicated solely to the study of the Middle East and on the line with us now. Alex, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Great to be with you. Can you give us a bit of an update on this? We're hearing reports now from the Associated Press that Iran is saying that it didn't strike the, uh, uh, it, or sorry, it, it could have stru- struck a spy plane as well that was in the area or had that option? Right. That's the latest that's coming out from the region. The Iranians are saying that they definitely took down the drone because they are saying that drone had entered Iranian uh, airspace. But they're saying they had equally a, uh, a chance, an opportunity to take down a, uh, an American military aircraft with what they say uh, 35 passengers on, on board, but they decided not to do so. You know, we can try and figure out what they're make, uh, why they're saying this, but that's at least the claim that's the latest coming out of uh, Iran. So in other words, it could have been a lot worse than what it was. Right, right. Absolutely. That's what they're saying, Scott. But I just want to go back to a point which is very important to understand. The Iranian regime, as reckless as it has been for the last 40 years, is not a suicidal regime. This is not a regime that underestimates the might of the United States armed forces. They're not in the business of lightly inviting an American retaliation. And if I was to analyze what has come out from the military leadership in Tehran, they're kind of walking back. Uh, listening to their statements, they're trying to sort of tone it down, tone it down a bit, if you will, because again, uh, they don't want to, they don't want to provoke uh, or chew more than they uh, bite more than they can chew, if I, if I could put it to you that way. Uh, so, was this aircraft in international airspace? Whose airspace was it in? Will we know? Do we know? You know, right now, uh, to be fair, uh, we have to take both uh, claims. I mean, the Iranians are saying if you're speaking about the drone. The Iranians are saying it was uh, it had entered Iranian airspace. They are producing wreckage uh, to show that uh, they got the wreckage because it landed on their ter- uh, in, in their waters. Uh, the latest I heard from the U.S. side was actually they kind of fished it up, and uh, that doesn't mean it wasn't Iranian uh, waters. It was, as the U.S. Uh, states to this day, uh, in international uh, space. So you got two contradicting claims here. Um, I think it can be important to debate it this way, but I think the big issue here is the, the politics of it. It's still very much clear to me that Washington and Tehran are not interested in getting this thing out of control. Uh, so, yeah, they're trying to sort of uh, talk around it, and neither side wants to lose face, but both sides are equally not interested in seeing this become a full-fledged uh, confrontation. So there, there seems to be uh, mixed messages on uh, who ordered uh, initially this strike and then called it back. What do we know about the retaliation uh, and the options of retaliation? Again, we're spec- I'm certainly speculating here. I, I can tell you that President Trump made the point that um, most likely this was a rogue player on the, uh, in the high command inside the Iranian military that decided to take, you know, uh, action. Let's stop there, uh, Alex. Is, the, is that possible? I, I heard him say that the other day, that, you know, it was just somebody who was, who, was, who was acting rogue. Is that possible? Does that happen? 
I haven't been an Iran watcher for the last 20 minutes. This is not a banana republic. The Iranian regime is certainly uh, is dislikable on different levels, but it's not a regime where you have chaos to the yeah. extent that you know generals can just shoot down a, a drone from a superpower. So, uh, uh, how do how do we react to Trump's comment of that? I mean. I think both sides here have a much deeper issue they need to figure out before we really get to, you know, who did what to who, when and why, so forth. On the U.S. side, sitting here in Washington, I am not convinced that the Trump administration really knows what it wants to do with Iran. They do want to talk to the Iranians, yes, but to what end? Do they want to talk just purely on the issue of what Iran is doing in terms of its nuclear program, what it does in the region? Or do they quietly harbor hopes that they can bring about regime change in Tehran? On the Iranian side, you've got an ideological entity, an Islamist model that's been in charge of that country for 40 years, that's turned anti-Americanism into a pillar of everything they stand for. It's really difficult for them to sort of stop being anti-American. And they've got to get around that issue. If they want to get it solved, mm. and solved in a sustainable manner, they just have to figure a way out of this you know, blaming the U.S. for everything that goes wrong. And Scott, let me just make one point. Mm -hmm. This drone was supposedly, if I uh, trust what the Iranian general who spoke earlier this morning, if I trust what he says, he says this drone flew out of the country of United Arab Emirates, which is a, a neighbor to Iran, to the south, and a U.S. ally. The Iranian regime has to ask, ask itself a simple question. How come so many of their neighbors are so worried about them that they have literally tens of thousands of American military forces stationed in their countries. Mm. They don't invite these Americans because they want to pay their, you know, for their lodging. They invite them because they fear something. And I would say they fear the Iranian regime. And that is at the heart of this issue. So we can sit here and talk about this being a problem between Trump and the Ayatollahs in Tehran. But I would say it's actually much deeper than that. It's a 40-year animosity. And a lot of it goes back to Ayatollah Khomeini, 1979, yeah. and the anti-Americanism mm. that he put down in that country back then. So, Alex, you combine that with um, uh, Donald Trump, who who isn't necessarily the most diplomatic leader that the, the that America has had. Chuck Schumer is saying, you know, don't bumble into war. How concerned are you that that could happen? I, I mean, I'm listening to the Trump base here in the United States. They do not want to see, certainly not boots on the ground. So I don't think anybody here should expect something similar to what we saw in 2003, an American tanks rolling down in another Middle Eastern capital the way they did in Baghdad. I don't think that's going to happen. What could happen, and this is a real prospect, is if the Iranians keep playing a very over, overconfident hand and making it impossible for Trump not to want to throw some red meat at his base in a period where he's gearing up for his re-election. So, yes, Trump does not want to be another George W. Bush sending hundreds of thousands of troops to another Middle Eastern theater, but that doesn't mean he's not going to sort of perhaps engage in limited military action. And I think that, you know, that could escalate into something much bigger. And just because Iran is involved in so many places in the Middle East, from Lebanon to Yemen, it could just become such an unruly process that we all, whether one of it or not, end up with a much larger conflict than anybody ever bargained for. In your mind, is Donald Trump handling and his administration handling this correctly? You know, you know Donald Trump has to, to basically stay the course. This is what he decided to do. I disagreed with his decision to pull out of the Iranian nuclear deal. I thought that was a good deal. I thought he had to find new ways to hit back against Iran in places like Syria and Iraq. But he could have left the nuclear deal be. So he made a decision. He gambled. He decided, if I put all the might of the United States behind this policy, we're going to get the Iranians on their knees. That hasn't happened. I don't think it will happen. I think he underestimated how willing, how stubborn the Iranian regime is to take its own people through all this trouble just to stand up to Trump. So... Right now, Trump has sent a message through the country of Oman to the Iranians. Let's talk. I mean, if I have to be optimist this afternoon, Scott, I say let's hope that the Iranian regime wants to talk to Trump. At least in the short term, maybe they can find a way to de-escalate this. But in the longer term, 
again, this is not the doing of Trump. Iran-U.S. relations, there's a lot of baggage. Yeah. This is a fourth-year animosity. It takes a lot of effort to get it done fixed in a proper way for the long term. Can Trump do a new deal here? Will he just take what has been dismantled and rename it, rebrand it? Well, I mean, that would be the good best case scenario if you're the Iranian regime, that he really just walked out of the nuclear deal just because Obama had signed it. Yeah. And if the Iranians are smart, they say, look, come back here. Instead of us suspending for 10 years, we'll suspend for 15 years. Is that good enough for you? Okay, we've got a new deal. Is that going to be enough? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But unfortunately, we're one step away from finding out because right now the Ayatollah Khamenei in Tehran doesn't even want to talk to Trump. It might change, but, um, you know, time will show. Um, so uh, getting back to that initial deal, and, and we know that the president has, it's certainly not the first time that he's taken something that the last president has done and, 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 and tried to rejig it. Um, how bad a deal was that initial deal? Why why dismantle that deal? Well, I mean, the, the, the people who are opposed to it, and remember, that was an executive order. So the U.S. Congress never signed up on that one. And that was always going to be sort of one of the major shortcomings of the, of the 2015 nuclear deal that the U.S. ended up signing with Iran together with a number of other global powers. I, I, as, I, as I said before, I thought that was the best deal you could reach at the time. Uh, the, the U.S. recognized Iran's right to have a civilian nuclear program. And to this day, the Iranians are pretty much staying within the bounds of the agreement. The problem with the uh, deal was others came along, including Trump, and said, let's see, is that all we want out of Iran? Is that the best thing we could get? Why don't we talk about what they're doing in the region? Why don't we talk about their ballistic missile program, their position in Israel, and so on? So you ended up, in May of 2018, Secretary Pompeo coming out with 12 demands. And those 12 demands, uh, demanding concessions from Tehran, went way outside the realms of this nuclear program. The question going forward is, could we maybe put those 12 points aside? go back to the key concern of the United States, which is the nuclear program, mm. and doing so, we de-escalate. We would essentially go back to what we had with the deal. But it might be enough for Trump to say, actually, he's going to spin it as his victory. He did it. It's better. Um, and he might get away with it. But right now, the idea that the Iranians are going to provide concessions on 12 core American demands, which essentially is, you know, amounts to an Iranian regime capitulating, it's unlikely. I don't see it happen. And final one point on this, which I think is critical, Scott. Remember, there are international actors, and primarily Russia and China, that have all the interest in the world in seeing United States failing in its Iran policy. Hmm. They don't want to see an American embassy open up in downtown Tehran. They are telling the Iranians, don't give in to Trump. We'll help you out. And I think that's a huge complicating factor in all this. Uh, Trump tweets on Monday, they shot down an unmanned drone flying in international waters. We were cocked and loaded to retaliate last night on three different sites. When I asked how many will die, 150 people, sir, was the answer from the general. Ten minutes before the strike, I stopped it. What are the ramifications of such a tweet? I think he basically is saying to the Iranians, look, we're not that far away from the point where American airstrikes are hitting you. And yet... He's saying to his own base, which is very critical of another American military intervention in the Middle East, that, listen, I'm not, I'm not just that, you know, uh, trigger happy. I'm, I'm thinking about the implications. This was an unmanned drone for me to kill 150 Iranians as part of a retaliation is excessive. I didn't do it. That makes me a reasonable person. I think there's a lot to be said about that. He is not someone who is going to sort of walk into another military conflict. That's what he ba- his base wants him not to do. And let's not forget, this is a man who was elected and wants to get reelected on a platform of no more stupid, endless wars across the globe that American taxpayers are paying for, but we've got very little to show for it. And funny enough, increasingly, that's what you're hearing from the president's favorite channel, Fox News. So he's, he's really also keeping the base in mind in, in everything he's doing right now on the, on the case of Iran. So where is this going? Does this either go towards a new deal or military interaction? 
I do see uh, if we continue to see this sort of escalations, we've had over the last two months six tankers being attacked, whether Iran did it or Iran didn't do it, doesn't matter. There are six tankers that right now uh, have physical damage to prove that somebody attacked them. And Iran certainly had to, has the motives to attack him. And, and Scott, the Iranian position is this. If we can't sell our oil, nobody's going to sell oil because the Iranians right now are losing $130 million per day in loss of oil export revenue. That's a lot of money when you add it up, $130 million per day. They're saying, hey, the rest of the world seems to be okay with this. Other countries are exporting their oil, and other countries are buying their oil, and we're being left out. So how do we get the world's attention? How do we get other people to pay a price? And I think those attacks and those tankers give Iran clearly a motive to do that. But to your point about where do, do, do we go from here? I think the Iranian Supreme Leader has good reasons to doubt the fundamental objectives of the Trump administration. There are many people in the Trump White House who genuinely believe Iran as a country is pro-American and Iran can become another pro-American ally the way it was before 1979. And the only thing in the way is a regime change that needs to go. There are people like John Bolton, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who genuinely believe in this. And so in that sense, I think the Supreme Leader of Iran has a right to be doubtful when Trump talks about, let's talk, and I have no conditions for you. Um, but that doesn't mean he shouldn't give it a go. So I, I hope, again, this is the optimist in me, that this Iranian Supreme Leader Khamenei would bite the bullet, if you will, and talk. At least they're going to buy some time. At the very least, they're going to buy some time. There might be de-escalation, and that might just prevent any further accidental, uh, you know, uh, skirmishes that could lead to something bigger and bloodier that everybody would uh, come to regret going forward. Alex Vatanka has been with us, senior fellow of the Middle East Institute. Alex, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Uh, it is 126. The phone lines are always open. 905-645-3221. Star 9900 on your cell. Angelo's on the line. Angelo, what's your comment? And uh, thank you very much for um, uh, coming to me. Uh, first of all, I, I agree with many of the things that I've heard. Uh, it was that Alex who spoke before me. Mm-hmm. Uh, no question about it. However, there's a couple of points I'd like to make. When people ask, why do countries around Iran worry about Iran? First of all, it's not all of them. And uh, one forgets in that discussion the pressure that we can't even imagine that our stable genius in the White House puts on countries who don't align and are lockstep with their wishes, whether it's to receive uh, soldiers on the ground, whether it's to trade in a certain way, whether to abandon certain alliances, etc. So my concern is that people need to understand the complexity of the situation that has been created by our stable genius uh, walking away from a deal which was a step forward and was uh, agreed by many important countries, European, China, Russia, and uh, a former president uh, and his government that seemed to be working in the right direction and uh, would have prevented this sort of uh, escalation, which if uh, it comes to a shooting war because of miscalculations or because of pride Mm. on any side, could really bring catastrophic consequences to certain countries, maybe not to us necessarily, maybe not even to the United States because, you know, powerful, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but people will be suffering as a result of uh, the idiocy that we're embarked on right now. Now, I'm not pro-Iranian. I got to let you go. I got to let you go with that, Angelo, because we are plumb out of time. Many uh, agree with what you said, especially in regard to uh, the last deal that was forged on and uh, now thrown out. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, We all know that uh, the president and the prime minister had a meeting yesterday uh, uh, wrapping up talking about um, NAFTA 2.0 and getting that ratified. uh, And, of course, uh, relationships with China and the Canadian detainees and such. Quite a different visit from uh, the last time uh, during the G20 when uh, the two of them kind of got, you know, dusted it up a little bit. After the, their initial meeting, it seemed like Trudeau was the only one that could kind of get along with Trump. And everybody was kind of asking him his advice on, on how you do all of that. And uh, But now it seems that uh, they're buddy-buddy again and, and everything is, uh, is uh, back on an even keel, uh, or as much as I guess it can be. Let's bring in Peter Graff, professor of political science, McMaster University, and he is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. So, who would have called this meeting? What was the real purpose of this? Was this all centered around NAFTA? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's normal for the Prime Minister and President to meet, and in the context uh, of the upcoming G20 meeting, it was, uh, I think, an opportunity for them uh, to to move through these things. I mean, I think they have their own interests in it. Uh, On the one hand, I think for Trump trying to steer NAFTA through the U.S. Congress, it probably helps to have uh, Trudeau, who's generally well seen by the Democratic leadership in Congress, uh, to be shown to be supporting the, the agreement. And of course, on Trudeau's side, to have uh, a, a warm relationship with the American uh, president, but not too close of one uh, like this, is probably useful in an election year in terms of showing that, you know, despite uh, Trump's threats to uh, really upset the trading system between Canada and the United States, he'd managed to find a way of, of seeing and sailing Canada through. Uh, considering how uh, tense the last visit was, are you surprised this one went smoothly or just they're both on the same page with what they're trying to do with their agenda? Well, I mean, I think with uh, Donald Trump, it's always uh, you know hard to tell, but certainly they had many uh, spaces of convergence here, I think particularly around the trade agreement. Uh, I mean, uh, Trump's uh, method for negotiating trade agreements seems to be to try and start with a threat, you know, in terms of imposing tariffs and to... Uh, you know, to bluster. Um, you know, once you're through the other side and sign a deal, obviously it has to be the best deal ever. <laughs> so in that context, uh, uh, you know, it's a bit dangerous to start, uh, you know, attacking, uh, you know, the Canadian Prime Minister. So, I mean, there were a few threats around, you know, if transshipments of steel came through Canada and the United States, maybe we'd be back into a tariff situation. But, you know, I think it's really where they were at in that negotiation. I think also in terms of the relationship with China, the fact that Canada hasn't uh, stepped down uh, or stepped back uh, you know, despite, uh, you know, attempts to limit our shipments of canola and a number of other uh, issues we've had uh, with the Chinese government in the past year, it also uh, makes Trump think that ultimately we're under the wing of his own strategy with respect to China, and that too probably improved uh, their relationship. In regard to uh, uh, the new trade deal, the new NAFTA 2.0, um, is this... And, and obviously, this is in Canada's best interest, too. So, I mean, the prime minister is there selling Canada. But also, he's there as an aide to uh, uh, the president in the sense that, you know, look, here, I've got Justin Trudeau, and he's signed on with this, and he's a liberal, and we got to get our liberals to sign on to this as well. How does Trudeau balance meeting with Trump and then meeting with Nancy Pelosi to try to speed it up and get it through, but not meaning, and as you said, uh, that, you're, that you're in bed with Trump? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's, it's fairly straightforward. I, I think the politicians uh, know the game, and even within the Democratic Party, someone like Nancy Pelosi is, uh, you know, is in the free trade wing of the Democratic Party and wants to see these deals done and so sees an interest in uh, finding a way to work with Trudeau. Again, she, she will have her own particular ways of trying to balance uh, you know, the more protectionist elements of the Democratic Party and, and trying to figure out how to get the bill through uh, Congress. Um, but again, I think Trudeau is, is potentially useful as well in terms of selling this. You know, And Trudeau came out and, and gave the sorts of story that a free trade Democrat would like to hear in terms of how the agreement you know, looked after workers' rights and, uh, and the like. And so... In that sense, he's you know useful uh, not just to Trump but also to Pelosi. Can he calm these waters between the two? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, uh, you know, as much as he's our prime minister, he's a pretty small fish, and probably ranks behind, you know, many you know the you know the steel sector interests. That being said, he is a, he is a key player in the whole NAFTA agreement. Um, yeah, but I think ultimately the understanding is that both Canada and Mexico need the United States much more and access yeah. to the U.S. market, uh, mm-hmm. you know, much more than the Americans need them. And so, 
I mean, as much as Trudeau puts on a brave face, uh, you know, some things were given away in the context of negotiating this. Some some of Canadian interests around intellectual property and, uh, uh, you know, a number of other features, uh, you know, are not wins for Canada. Uh, ultimately, Trudeau made the bet that Canadians thought that, you know, ensuring continuity and market access was much more important, and so he was willing to give those things up. So... Uh, you know, in that context, uh, you know, we aren't really needed that much. It's uh, the, what's really driving the American debate is, you know, whether this uh, agreement is good for, you know, a variety of different sector interests uh, in different states in the United States. Uh, all right. The second issue being China and not trade for us so much is the fact that, uh, well, it could be trade if it involves trading a, a CFO for two, uh, two Canadian detainees. Uh, the Prime Minister asked Donald Trump to talk to China uh, about these detainees, F- the first question would be, um, why not sooner? Um, it's almost as if Donald said, you know, his reaction was, yeah, sure, I, I can, I can look into that for you. I mean, it was also matter of fact. Why now? Um, and and what can, what will he say? Well, I mean, it didn't seem like he was that well briefed when the questions first came to him that you know that this was an issue. And uh, he has to be aware that there are Canadians detained in China, though. Uh, well, uh, I mean, he maybe was briefed going in, but he seemed, you know, as interested by a little model of, you know, Air Force One on the on the coffee table. But I mean, the fact is, uh, you know, I mean, look, it's something shiny. <laughs> I mean, Trudeau, I think, wanted Trump to uh, an, uh, allow Trudeau to have a meeting, um, and you know, for Trump to use his uh, his uh, weight to to produce a meeting. Uh, Trump instantly jumped on that to say, "Well, no, I'll speak for you, Justin." <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> exactly. Was, and so, again, I think, uh, you know, Trump, uh, you know, is happy to have Canada under the wing, but uh, not to, you know, put it to the forefront. So in, the, in this context, it's not clear really what Trump is, is uh, planning on doing, although in a way, you know, it puts Canada in a difficult situation because, uh, you know, the fact of having, uh, you, know, de- uh, you know, detained and uh, charged, uh, sorry, detained this executive and, and uh, potentially uh, extradited to the United States uh, uh, you know, gives Trump a bit of a bargaining chip. And that was one of the issues when Canada said, no, this is all about uh, the rule of law. It's got nothing to do with, you know, Trump's interest in, in bargaining, in uh, driving hard bargains with China. To the extent that Trump begins being the, the mouse or the spokesperson, uh, it makes it harder to make that case for the rule of law. Um, would Justin Trudeau have said as frankly uh, in regard to the detainees to to, uh, to Prime Minister, or sorry, to President uh, Trump, sir, what would you do if China scooped up two of your citizens off the street? Would it get that frank? Would it get that blunt? Uh, yeah, it could well. I mean, I think, uh, you know, particularly, again, when you're, when you're the mouse uh, talking to the elephant, yeah. uh, you, you really think through, you know, what would be the kind of pitch and appeal that would appeal to Trump. However, when the mouse is saving the elephant's rear end, and that's what's happened here, does that mouse not deserve a little bit more recognition? Well, what's deserved and what one gets, uh, again, are, are different yeah. things. You know, I, you can, uh, if you're the mouse and the elephant, uh, to, to extend this metaphor too far, I mean, at the end of the day, whether you're in the right or whether what you deserve, uh, it's really still what the elephant decides. And so, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I think with someone like Trump, but I mean, with any uh, previous president, uh, uh, there's a lot of attention that's given into how can you, how can you make a difference uh, I mean, you know, Jean Chrétien, I think you still think that he was, uh, you know, brilliant in his manner of engaging uh, Bill Clinton and finding the way to, to charm him in a way. And uh, uh, Trudeau is probably not charming uh, Trump, but again, finding a variety of different ways to try and move him on matters that matter to Canada. Should should the Prime Minister have done this sooner? And I guess we're assuming, I mean, we can't assume that he hasn't spoke about it uh, to him uh, before, because I believe he has, although perhaps not in person. Um, should there have been more pressure on him sooner to do this, or is this all in simply because the next G20 is coming up in Japan, they're going to meet anyway, hey, can you please do this? Yeah, I think it's much more along those lines. I mean, uh, I mean, in part, uh, you know, when, when relationships aren't great and when you're in the middle of uh, negotiating uh, a trade agreement uh, where the stakes are high and uh, uh, ultimately, there's some pretty strong disagreements between the, the countries. Uh, probably a meeting is a bit dangerous. I think you wait for that to be out of the way uh, to have this kind of discussion. I mean, of course, it's not like there aren't daily discussions at all kinds of levels between what's happening in the United States and in Canada in terms of officials trying to deal with problems and 
as part of this meeting. I mean, they signed or dealt with about four different things, you know, ranging from opioids to sharing of information at the border, pre-screening of people crossing the border. So there's a lot of ongoing negotiations on, on questions big and small. I mean, the meeting of the leaders, I think, is mostly to do two things. You know, one, if there's something that can't be decided at a sort of official level, maybe they can broker something politically. Uh, but the other, I think, is to just to say, well, here are, you know, here are the big issues that we want uh, the state officials to be working on in the next couple of years, or this is a spirit in which we want to uh, find agreement. And so that, that's a real point of these meetings. Uh, G20 coming up in Japan, which is how we got to this discussion where we are now. How significant this G20, what will be the priority of the agenda here, do you think? Well, I mean, I think we have a, a global economy uh, that, you know, is, is not in the worst shape, but where there's still, you know, some looming concerns about uh, relatively slow weights of growth, uh, you know, exposure, uh, exposure uh, to a number of, of, you know, financial bubbles, uh, particularly in real estate and in the north. So, I mean, I think there's an ongoing concern about where growth is going to come from. And I think the other side of it, too, is to say, well, around, you know, climate change, uh, no one is really that serious <laughs> about moving alone. So, uh, again, uh, the sort of environment uh, ecology link, I think, would be pretty important for global leaders. How much will the U.S.-China trade deal uh, um, uh, manipulate this this conversation, these conversations? I think it will be present. I mean, obviously, the question, too, about the European Union and uh, Brexit. Brexit, yeah, be, yeah. So, I mean... Uh, there Lots are on ways, the table. <laughs> yeah, I mean... From the 1990s through to, you know, the the last American election, the idea that we would have a pretty uh, liberal and open uh, trading uh, system uh, and that states like Russia and China would be part of that and play by, you know, the sets of rules set up at that time was pretty consensual. I think in the past four years there's a lot uh, less confidence in uh, sort of international solutions around trade and uh, uh, beginning to think of other ways that maybe international economic cooperation will take place. All right, one more question. Uh, this uh, not in regard to this in any way, but in regard to uh, a new Angus Reid poll that's out that said the majority of Canadians are behind the Prime Minister with his decision to go ahead with the Trans Mountain Pipeline. I think it was like 59%. Uh, will this decision help or hurt the Prime Minister considering he declared the climate emergency and then followed that up with the approval of the pipeline? Is this helping him or hurting him? Uh, well, I think it's mostly a wash. Uh, I mean, the place where it would help the most, uh, you know, in Saskatchewan and Alberta, uh, I don't think anyone's really buying it. Uh, they're much closer to Andrew Shear's view that somehow, you know, despite, uh, you know, supporting the buying uh, the pipeline and ensuring that it goes through, he's still trying to uh, phase out the oil and gas industry, I think, was Shear's argument today. And I think he's winning that. I think it will have some cost for uh, Trudeau in the lower mainland of Vancouver. But you know, in the, the inland of, uh, of of British Columbia, but also just more generally, I think, in Ontario and the east, uh, you know, it will have relatively limited negative impact for them and will have some positive impact, uh, uh, you know, among those who see this as a way to jobs. Peter Grave has been with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend. And you too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.